Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, we're going to learn together about solitary confinement in Canada. In the last Parliament, we passed legislation to address solitary confinement with new and supposedly improved structured intervention units. But a recent report found that 10% of inmates in these units continue to actually be in what we know to be solitary confinement, and worse, for long enough to meet the UN's definition of torture. Yes, that's right, torture. That report was authored by two professors and criminologists, Ryerson's Jane Sprott and the University of Toronto's Anthony Dube. I'm joined on this episode by one of those authors, Professor Dube, who is recognized as a longtime leading scholar in criminology, but was also appointed in 2019 by then-Minister Ralph Goodale to serve as the chairperson of the Structured Intervention Unit Implementation Advisory Panel. All of that's to say, it is unacceptable that any aspect of our prison system would amount to torture, cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment, and there is no one better place to discuss solitary confinement in Canada than Anthony Dew. Tony, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. You are the co-author of a recent report, a damning report, really, as it relates to solitary confinement and what effectively amounts to torture here in Canada. And before we get to the substance of your report, for those who are coming to this for the first time, what are the Mandela rules? What amounts to solitary confinement and what amounts to torture in the circumstances? Well, I think the starting point might be that prisons traditionally have certain prisoners who are obviously very difficult. And what they often do with those difficult prisoners is to isolate them from the rest of the prison population, uh, sometimes for their own safety, sometimes for the safety of others, and so on. So I think we all understand that that may be a necessity of the operation of, of prisons. So what usually happens is the person is taken and put in a cell by themselves and separated from the from the rest of the of the uh, population and then the theory is that they should be moved back as quickly as possible now if they don't get moved back they are in effect in solitary confinement whatever one wants to call it and the Understanding, I think, from a fair amount of research in the last 20 years or so, with a very small number of exceptions, is that solitary confinement is not a good thing for the prisoner. It interferes with their mental health. It may have permanent negative impacts on them, and therefore it should be limited as much as possible. I suppose the the history is that given that finding, given our understanding of what it does to prisoners, there have been attempts to try to restrain its use. And the Mandela rules are internationally developed, and they they are a set of, of limits on the use of solitary confinement. So the idea of what solitary confinement is, I mean, you have to define what you're doing. The idea of solitary confinement is that a person is held in a cell for a long period of time without an ability to get out and have meaningful contact with human beings. And what the Mandela rules say is that people should be getting out of their cell and have meaningful human contact for at least two hours every day. And at some point, they say that that's not sufficient. And that point is around 14 days, 14, 15 days. And what they say is after a person has been kept 
with these with this very limited amount of human interaction for more than a couple of weeks it becomes what can be considered to be torture now what canada did is it says we're not going to have either solitary confinement as it's defined by the mandela rules or torture by requiring that there be at least four hours out of the cell, two hours of which is meaningful human contact. And then the limits then don't become relevant because, of course, everybody is supposed to be getting their four hours out of their cells. And this is not a new conversation in Canada insofar as the courts have weighed in that indefinite isolation of incarcerated people violates Section 7, the liberty interest, violates Section 12 in some cases, of a, a prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. But it's also a conversation we've already had at the federal level, as you say. We've reformed these rules, certainly in the last parliament through what was C83. In your report, though, and, and the report I, I would note is the third in, in a series, from the perspective of a parliamentarian who helped pass C83, one would have hoped we would have seen a positive change in practices. Have the initial problems that you and, and others identified, have they been lessened by virtue of the rules we put in place? We actually really don't know about whether the problems have been lessened. And the reason for that is that the kinds of information that are being collected in terms of the number of hours out of the cell and the number of hours of meaningful human contact were not collected prior to November 30th, 2019. But going back to your original suggestion, there were certainly some concerns being expressed, as you well know, by senators in particular about C83. And one of the important ones had to do with oversight and control of these. Uh, I think that the reason that those concerns were being expressed is that the feeling was that without that kind of serious oversight of what was going on, that the idea behind getting rid of solitary confinement would not happen. And what that essentially means is that the legislation would not be implemented as it's stated in the law and in the regulations and then the commissioner's directives. And part of that, of course, is that everything in prisons goes, goes on behind walls, literally. That lack of transparency, everything happening behind walls, it's it's been a fight for you to get the necessary data in your hands where you chaired an independent advisory board that from the perspective of a, an observer, no work seemed to really take place. You got into a bit of a public fight from what I could tell to say, we need the data, we're not getting the data, CSC is not cooperating until recently. And then your report now is premised on the data that you have been receiving since September 2020. Yes. I mean, that, that history is interesting. I mean, we were appointed as a panel during in sort of mid over the summer of 2019. And one of the first things that we did was to make a formal request to Correctional Service of Canada. We made that our first meeting was at the end of October. In the middle of November, we made a formal request to Correctional Service of Canada to give us administrative data on the operation of these units. We saw that as our first step in trying to understand is trying to oversee these things. You look at the administrative data, you use them as a kind of summary way of finding out 
what's actually going on on a day-to-day basis, and then you identify problems, and then you probably go in and try to understand those problems better, maybe by interviewing people, by looking at what the operation is, or maybe looking at other data. So that was our plan. We put in that request in mid-November or so, and uh, our first set of data uh, on the basis of the first couple of months of operation uh, was to be delivered to us at the middle to end of, of February. We said we want data every two months. You have a month to put it together. They didn't object to that timeline until such time as it came time to think about delivering us the data in February of 2020. And we were told that they weren't sure that they were going to give us the data, even though the name of our panel was the Implementation Advisory Panel. Uh, How do we know anything about implementation unless we have information? And so there was some toing and froing on that issue uh, right up until, well, essentially, without going into detail, essentially until the mandates of all of us who were on the panel ran out after a year, at which point we wrote a report saying, here's what we did, here's the correspondence, here's our attempts to try to find it, to get this information. There was a sort of half-hearted attempt on the part of correctional service in the middle or toward the end of this to give us something which turned out to be useless. But then we never had any, any information. We released that report under the rules that we were operating then of giving them the chance to respond to it and so on. And eventually in August, it was released. And that became a public issue in itself. Shortly thereafter, Correctional Service of Canada changed its tune on this. Immediately prior to that, it said it was really impossible to give us data. But in August, late August, they said that they could give us data. And to their credit, in the 30th of September, so very shortly thereafter, they did give us the first set of data. And that was, we, Jane Sprott at Ryerson and I wrote two reports on that. One was released in October and the other was released in November. And then after the November one was released, we asked them about giving us more up-to-date data And they responded very favorably to that. They said, look, we can give you up-to-date data, but if you wait a couple weeks more, we can give you not only more up-to-date data, but extended some of of the information that you'd asked for originally, we're now able to give you. And again, to their credit, at the end of December, early January, they gave us the updated set of data that we used for our report that came out a couple of days ago. And while great frustrations, early days with accessing data, finally you have data in your hand, the culture of transparency isn't always strong in in some of these agencies. And so I'm glad to see that that has changed as it relates to providing that data. Now you expressed some frustration alongside Professor Sprott that it is two pro bono researchers that are providing this level of accountability. Walk me through the, the findings Now that you've gotten the data, you've analyzed the data, you've got this recent report, what should Canadians know about what you and Professor Sprott are are writing about? Well, I think there are 
two or three things that are sort of basic findings. One is that everybody understands that these stays in the structured intervention units are supposed to be as short as possible. So one of the one of the measures that you can look at is how long are people actually spending in these structured intervention units? And what we see is that although there are a fair number that are relatively short periods of time, which is what you'd expect if there's a kind of an acute problem and then they have to deal with that problem. But there are also a fair number of, of very long stays, some very, very long stays. And there's some indication that in the early days of these, that things were moving in the right direction. In the most recent time period, it doesn't seem to be the case anymore that things seem to have stalled in terms of reducing the number of long stays in solitary confinement. The second thing is that what is supposed to distinguish a uh, period of time in one of these units from torture or solitary confinement is the time that people get to be out of their cells and to have some meaningful human contact. And the Correctional Service of Canada has never been very successful at accomplishing providing either of those two kinds of experiences, time out of cell or meaningful human contact. And again, those did not get better. There was an initial idea that maybe that had to do with COVID. In our November report, we looked at that and we saw that the problems pre-existed COVID uh, and still exist today. On that point, CSC did not contradict that finding, was my understanding. Well, they used it. It was their explanation initially. They had two explanations for their for our initial findings in our initial report. The first was that the data that they gave us had flaws in it. Well, administrative data always have flaws in it. We, we're used to that. We don't have any problems. You know, somebody enters a date wrong and it doesn't make any sense. That's life in this business. And, and we understand that. But the question isn't whether there were some errors in the data. The question is whether there were errors in the data in a particular direction which led to these findings. There was nothing which would indicate that. Correctional Services of Canada offered that as an explanation, excuse, whatever you want to call it, but did drop it quickly. The second one is that they said, well, these things all happened during the COVID period. Our second report addressed that, and they never have come back explicitly with that as a central explanation for, for what's going on. So the the third thing, which obviously is important in understanding what's going on, is that some of the time prisoners do refuse to leave, that they say that they don't want to leave their cells. That clearly does happen. There's no question of that. Correctional Service of Canada gave us the data on that in terms of whether there had been refusals by individual people. And there certainly are a, a substantial number of those. There are two problems with that. The first problem is that we don't know really why they refuse. So that if a person in one cell refuses because he says, I don't want to go out because you're putting me out in into the population of other people who are in these units. And, you know, I know that this guy has it in for me. So I just as soon stay where I am, where I have relative safety. The problem with that is that under the 
rules under the law and the regulations on this thing, that Correctional Service of Canada has an obligation to look beyond the simple refusal. The simple refusal is not supposed to be sufficient for us to, to sort of stop and say, well, okay, you refuse, so that's the end of the story. Because otherwise, you just, you're not giving that person a decent chance. I mean, of course, if he thinks he's going to get beaten up, he's not going to want to leave his cell. But you shouldn't be stopping there. The second thing, which I think is important, is that we found huge variation across regions. And earlier, we had looked at it within region across institutions in the ability of Correctional Service of Canada to provide what they are supposed to provide in law, which are these kinds of meaningful things which move it from being solitary confinement to ordinary imprisonment. And Jane Sprott and I felt that if some institutions and some regions are able to do this considerably better than others, that that tells you that it can be done. If something is impossible, it's impossible. But when things are being done much better in some institutions than other institutions, then that tells you that that tells you what's possible. But more to the point from the perspective of running a prison service, what it tells you is where you can go to try to at least start to try to find out how to do it better. And you know, if one institution is doing one thing better and another institution is doing another thing better, then both of them can learn from the experiences where it's where it's working better. And we as outsiders don't know what is actually happening in these circumstances. So we 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 can't really find out. But that is the kind of thing that Correctional Service of Canada could do to learn from their successes and their failures. And on the operation of the structured intervention units, that's a perfect opportunity because they have a certain number of these across Canada and they can see where things are working and where they aren't. The second part of our current report looks at a number of these things and finds still, like our first report, that there is that you know large amount of variation. And, and that really jumped out at me coming to this on the numbers and almost 40% of those entering structured intervention units are missing their full four hours out of the cell every day of their stay, which is the standard that we've set for ourselves for longer stays. So 16 days plus a majority of people are, are missing those full four hours in a majority of cases. The other thing that jumped out in terms of numbers was 28% of SIU states qualify as solitary confinement and almost 10% qualify under that international definition of torture or other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment. But that regional variation also jumped out because we aren't we aren't only talking about small variations. The variations as between Ontario and Quebec on solitary confinement, or as between the prairies and Pacific, as it related to the definition of torture, the variations were staggering. Yes. I mean, just to give one example, there's something like 135 people who were in for a long period of time, 16 days or more, who got their full time out of cell that, or close to their full time out of cell that they were supposed to get their four hours out of cell. I think if it's all but one of them was in one region. You say, well, why is the Prairie region able to accomplish this? And when you look at it, it's really two institutions within that Prairie region that are accomplishing this. So you you say, well, 135 people out of whatever number it was, we're getting it, but they're all from one place. Okay, they know something. 
I mean, you, you can't blame it on everything else. I mean, one of these was one of the institutions, Stony Mountain, that has a high COVID rate as well. So you, you take all of these things and say, there's a lot to be learned. There's a lot that, that can be learned in these things. And the, the solitary confinement and torture issues are, are obviously related to that, because one of the definitions is that if people aren't getting out of their cells, that's part of the classification of what makes it important to think about these as solitary or tor- or as torture. In engaging with the minister's office, my understanding is, and I'm, I'm glad they've done this, but they're already obviously in touch with the commissioner and CSC to ask that an examination be undertaken immediately and nationally as it relates to find out what is working in certain regions to then replicate those models elsewhere. But when we look at some other possible solutions, one other item that really jumped out at me was when you look at these independent external decision makers, uh, an independent external decision makers review is triggered when an inmate in an SIU doesn't get their minimum hours out of a cell or minimum hours of meaningful human contact for five straight days or for 15 out of 30 days is my understanding. And then there's the 60 day review just for as far as length of time. But I couldn't figure out why it is that these independent external decision makers review matters where an individual has been in 60 days plus? Well, there are two things in that. There are a set of reviews that we know very little about. We don't know how they take place. We don't know what kind of information they have and so on that that do take place when, when prisoners do not get their required number of hours. So that the independent external decision makers can come in. And as far as we can tell, what they're doing is that they are saying, well, this is all right because this person isn't getting their hours for this particular reason. And and they give it their stamp of approval. So in terms of the number of hours out of cell and the number of hours of meaningful contact, there are reviews by these same people earlier uh, in the process. So that If all of that was happening, then the SIU cells are, in fact, becoming much more like ordinary cells. They're just separated and and have special kinds of of rules associated with them. So they are involved in that. But at this point, we know nothing about that. And again... One of the issues that's sort of interesting in that is, given the variation that we've already talked about in the ability to do that, what we are recording and what we are talking about is after the IEDMs have done their reviews of time out of cell. So, you know, when when I'm saying that almost all of these people who are actually getting their time out of cell in the long stays are from one region, you wonder what's going on with the reviews that are taking places in the other regions that they aren't able to accomplish that as well. Now, the other part is that the independent external decision makers do come in to look at the length of stay, but then they're only really coming in at 60 days or after 60 days when there have been a number of internal reviews. And I think the feeling is it's not just that it's a long time you've been in, in effect, in this solitary cell for, for two months, but under the Mandela rules, in theory, it's not solitary confinement or torture because you've had the, the time out of cell. Now, of course, you're not getting the time out of cell. So the 60 days is 
awfully late to have an independent uh, look at these things. I think there's another problem with that. And, and we haven't looked at the IEDMs. Well, we haven't looked at them really very much at all yet. But I think that many people have felt that there really needs to be somebody who has the independence of a judicial officer to, to be able to do this. And that it, there should be some transparency of the process and of the findings. You know, we don't have a lot of people in these cells at the moment. It's not as if we're, we're talking about thousands of people. During this whole period of time, we had about 1,900 people who were at one point or another, maybe sometimes twice or more times in one of these cells. My guess is, you know, today there might be 200, 250 people out of probably 12,500 prisoners who are in structured intervention unit cells. So it's not as if it's an enormous thing. We have very expensive prisons. Our prisons are costing over $100,000 per person per year to imprison these people. It is not a terribly exorbitant price to have a reasonable, transparent process to ensure that the law is implemented as you folks passed it. And so when we look at that level of independent oversight, the goal then would be you would see those IEDMs or that that structure of accountability the chain of command would flow to an independent decision maker, a judicial officer of some sort, potentially, as opposed to CSC itself, knowing what we know about the culture. Yeah. Yeah. And various people have made suggestions that, you know, you can you can compromise on these things. So let's say there are a fair number of stays in these units, which are very short which might be up to seven days. I don't remember offhand exactly what the number is. But, you know, you could say, all right, for seven days, we don't have to worry terribly much. The person isn't getting out of their cell. This is a cooling out uh, experience for them that, you know, may or may not be necessary, but it's not as it's not terrible to put this person in a cell by themselves for a relatively short period of time. So you could have, you know, a judicial review of of the stay in one of these units kick in only after a certain period of time there. And you could even if you get more complicated, have that judicial review being done by different kinds of people in some ways, the same way we do with with other kinds of judicial things. We have justice of the peace who are able to do certain kinds of judicial uh, things, but we don't allow justice of the peace to do other kinds of things. So you could you could imagine a more complicated thing where the practical, you know, is is legitimately very important. I mean, if it's eight o'clock at night, and this person is acting up and you're worried about that person's safety or somebody else's safety, you're going to want to be able to do something right away without having to go before a judge. Well, then the question is how long do you have to wait till you go before a judge? We do the same thing, of course, with, with the rest. You have been very active, obviously, in publishing these reports and helping to hold the government accountable. The role of a member of parliament is also to hold the government accountable. And so if you were in my shoes on this particular issue, my takeaway from your report is a a serious call for independent accountability and greater transparency from CSC. Is there anything else that you would be really emphasizing in conversations with the minister's office if you were me? 
Well, I think that there are two things. I mean, one is the accountability and and transparency on the individual decisions having to do with placing a person in one of these units and reviewing when they're there. I think the other thing which has been shown, unfortunately, very clearly by the experiences that Jane Sprott and I have had is that you need a kind of independence of kind of systematic oversight, kind of looking at the structure of things as a whole, not individual cases. So you've got the individual cases and then the kind of administrative overview. And the administrative overview doesn't have to be elaborate. It doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be big, but what it has to do is it has to have the ability to do this. Now, we managed in a sense to be able to do it somewhat. I mean, the Correctional Services of Canada, as I've already pointed out, has been cooperative in providing us these administrative data. That's the first step. But what you really need is something like the original panel that I chaired with some ability to actually do its work. Correctional Services of Canada was very, very effective in blocking us 100%. If you were asked to chair a reconstituted panel, would you rejoin such an effort? Chairing it and rejoining are are two separate kinds of issues. And I think that the answer is it's very difficult to refuse. I think that those of us who I've talked to informally and I've talked to a fair number of people about the panel, everybody feels that the panel has to be organized and constituted in a different way and has to have different kinds of resources and, and powers. And on that latter point on on powers, it occurs to me, I would feel comforted if someone in your shoes or Professor Sprott's shoes participating in an independent oversight panel had the power to, say, call in the individuals who are responsible for the management of prison in the prairies to say, what specifically are you putting into place that others aren't putting into place so that you can then crunch the numbers and provide analysis in a public facing way so that I can then turn around and call to Minister Blair, here's what we have to do to solve the problem. Because right now I don't know. Well, that's right. And I think that exactly that kind of thing. But it's also, for example, you you spoke earlier about people who are refusing to leave their cells. Right. Well, you need somebody who the prisoners are comfortable talking to about why they are listed in the administrative data as having refused to leave their cells yesterday. And one can imagine, I mean, I can certainly imagine, I know people who prisoners would be perfectly happy to speak to in in these kinds of circumstances. Other commissions and committees that have actually gone into prisons have often done these sorts of things. I was reading the report of one of the commissions who required that Correctional Service of Canada tell everybody in each of these institutions that the prisoner could come before the committee and speak to them without any guards in the room and without any recording equipment and no lawyers, nothing, just so that the commission would hear directly, confidentially from the prisoner. You need that ability to do things. It's not easy to do. I'm not suggesting it's easy, but it also isn't resource heavy. So it's it's a matter of lending the prisoner. It's not as if the prisoner has the truth and the, or Correctional Service of Canada has the truth, but the prisoner could easily say, yeah, I told the guy I didn't want to go out for the following kinds of reasons. We're going to have to address these. We're going to have to find out, but we're going to have to find them out on, on the basis of systematic information. I'm not convinced 
that you can leave that to Correctional Service of Canada. And the reason I don't think that you can is that prisoners aren't going to be comfortable speaking to somebody who reports to the commissioner eventually. And my own view of some of these agencies, I spoke to Michelle Basterash about the RCMP, but you can't leave it to these agencies to reform themselves in a sufficient way. You do need that really strong, you say systemic level of accountability. So you really need to stand up a really strong oversight body with powers to really make sure that we see the reform that is necessary. My first ask then is to have the minister reconstitute the advisory panel, the oversight panel, and to send you a request that you can't refuse. <laughs> well, we'll see. Whether it's me or somebody else doesn't matter. I mean, what, what's really important is that there be such a right. an oversight panel. I mean, the, the previous minister did have an oversight panel. There was an oversight panel that was appointed and I guess all of us agreed to be on it on the assumption that we could actually contribute something to that. You know, as it turned out, we all, each of us, wasted an enormous amount of time. The people I've spoken to informally are saying, I'm not going to let that happen again. And It has to be a meaningful exercise with real powers. Yes. Well, I appreciate you highlighting this issue and all of the work you've put in. I will say prisoners' rights get short shrift in politics and are not the most popular issue for politicians to to rally around. But we do have international obligations, but also just an obligation as a matter of decency and humanity. So I, I really appreciate you elevating this conversation in the public consciousness so that we take it more seriously and that we can ultimately address this issue once and for all to ensure that we aren't contravening our international obligations and, and we don't see the word torture attached to our prisons. I mean, I agree with everything you said, but there is another perspective, and that is that roughly 80% of these people in the structured intervention units are going to be back in the community. That's absolutely inevitable because they're they're serving fixed sentences. The other 20% have life sentences and maybe they're until they die. But, you know, a substantial number of them are going to be back in the community as well. But there's 80% who we know are going to be back in the community. So aside from decency and fairness and following the law and all of those things. I had this conversation recently with Minister Hussein about systemic racism in our criminal justice system. And we, and we talked about just this, that as a matter of public safety in the end, there's this so-called tough on crime agenda that holds itself out as connected to public safety. But when we look at the reality that so many people in prisons are going to be back in our communities by not taking an approach that is going to ensure that they are best placed to succeed in our communities. We're putting ourselves at greater risk. Yes, exactly. Well, I appreciate your time and I appreciate your, your work on this. And as you continue to publish reports and, and continue to, to be a voice on this, please stay in touch. Thank you. I will. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. As I mentioned in our conversation, I am engaged with the minister's office on this, and there is an active conversation as between the minister's team and CSC to ensure best practices are elevated across the entire national system. And I'm hoping we'll also reestablish that expert advisory panel, reinstate Anthony Duke perhaps, or bring someone new on like Jane Sprott. If you have a suggestion for a future topic or guest, please do be in touch. Leave a positive review if you can on your platform of choice. Shameless, I know. And otherwise, until next time.